Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit that everything we say and everything we do and everything we see and every thought we have be brought captive to the love found in the Holy Trinity. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, good to see you. Um, another week to think about your death. So, uh, <laughs> actually the sermon was extraordinarily valuable today with the nowness of it. And we're in this stretch run now where we run toward Advent, but uh, the text can be a bit grim unless you're on the right side of them and then everything is going to be okay. But I know that some of you through the years, I've known that some of you have been uh, paralyzed by the thought of your death and many people disturbed. On the other side, I know people who don't give it a thought and they really should. But if we can move away from those two extremes and if we can begin to think about who we are and what we're meant for and where we came from and what life ma why life matters, what we're good for. And you know, the nowness of the servant today, you know, this is the day, right? This is the day. So pay attention to today. If we can use everything that we have to draw us into a life that follows Christ, that is the life that our Heavenly Father desires for us. And the ultimate test is if you can receive your own death as a gift and as a blessing. So later, buried in here somewhere, I have a line, uh, which I've said only occasionally to people, it doesn't always go down well, but you'll die at the perfect time in the perfect way. And failing that, you will die at a time and in a way that is divinely approved. And faith will say, uh, the Lord has use of me. So my mentor, Norman Nagel, you know, who from some medical error, spent the last 11 years of his life uh, in a bed. So you have this vigorous man who mentally was still remarkable. You know, about year eight, he looked at me one day and said, there must be a blessing for me in this somehow. Which is, uh, you know, the, a remarkable statement of faith. There must be a blessing for me in this somehow. Only the Lord would know. But of course, faith confesses that the Lord does know and that he cares for you. And so our entire lives, if they're not to be wasted, our entire lives are meant to find what it is that the Lord desires from us and how we might be used. And not tomorrow, today, right? So I began last week by trying to make a very simple point, but I think profound, which is, Human morality is not enough, and human ideas are not enough. You're meant to be holy. You're meant to be divine. So have a read at this very first thing. Point number one, we're not just meant to be moral, we're meant to be perfect. You were made to be perfect, created perfect. You are meant to be divinely perfect. Don't you move. You can stand up, but other, don't make me hold that child, because I will. <laughs> There'll be some disappointment. I'm not quite so good as you. Christian morality is more than anything society could ever propose to us. So, you know, the great, um, the great debates right now, it's, you know, people, are, especially Christians, are so stirred up about the debates right now, transhumanism and where we're going in the future and AI and all these sorts of things, right, along with, you know, banning the church. And we had a pause about 10 years ago where 
humanists tried to take over Sunday morning and postmoderns were going to have church without God and all this, and that's completely fizzled, right? The point of all this is, is it's all been thought of before. There is nothing new. So Christians don't have to get all worked up. They just have to see that we've seen this before and we know precisely what to do. We know precisely what to do. Christian morality is more than anything society could ever propose to us. It's something greater than is found in the writings of any philosopher. It's greater than any moral duty we could think up on our own. So Christ is greater than philosophy. Christ is greater than morality. We are not called to human perfection. We are called to divine perfection, something only God himself can give. And in this divine perfection, we find our highest human perfection as well. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else will be added later, right? And of course, sidebar, God gives this in church and nowhere else. Grace is gratis, grace is gift, grace is simply freely given. But St. Paul is quite clear that this gift calls for us to be transformed and active, a new creation brimming with life. This is the place where Lutherans often fall down. So because we don't depend on works, we don't do any works. We get this weird idea that we can sort of bump through life as if the church is fire insurance and if I show up on Christmas and Easter, that should be sufficient. That is a wasted life. The measure of your life is what Jesus can get out of you. That is the measure of your life. And everything else is ancillary. Everything remains divine in this moral tale. God is its source. God is at work in our action. God is its end and our goal. I'm turning the page. God gives us himself so that we can have the greatest honor ever imaginable to give God to God. Or that's a particularly Catholic way of saying it. Uh, or to live in God's image, to live divinely, to reflect Trinitarian love. We are called to be remade in Christ, to do all things in him to do all things in him, no matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world does. It also doesn't matter if all the other Christians are hopeless and angry and violent and confused. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that we do all things in Christ. Through this gift of grace, we receive new light a new vocation. We receive our task, right? Christianity spreads most effectively in our action. This too is a thing that often rankles Lutherans. But of course it's quite true because it's very easy to do this, but it's very difficult to ignore someone who dies as a martyr or someone who loses everything for a great witness. It's very hard to ignore people who turn the other cheek, do good to those that hate them, and pray for their enemies, and live and loan expecting nothing in return. At the very least, those people are thought of as crazy, and crazy draws attention. 
Indeed, it was Christ himself who said, let your light shine before men. So they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When I was traveling a few weeks ago, I stumbled on the church accidentally where Maximilian Kolb was a priest. He's famous to the Catholics the way Bonhoeffer is famous to the Lutherans. He preached against um, the Nazis, was rounded up, sent to Auschwitz, and two or three days or weeks in, there was a father being taken to be executed. Kolb sees the man family and says, I'll go instead. And in the twisted logic of execution camps, it apparently didn't make any difference. They spared the father, took Kolb, and beheaded him. Who would ever know that except everybody? And so on this side of this church in Padua, there's a thing, Maximilian Kolb served here as our pastor. Indeed, it was Christ who said, let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In short, your light is not for you. You don't come to church for you. You come to church for me. This morning, I came to church for you. This morning, you came to church for me. You came to church for the person to your left and to your right. Of course, you came for you, but you came for your parents and you came for your children, you came for your friends, and frankly, you came for the people you don't like very much because we're all in it together, friends. In short, your light is not for you. It's meant to shine forth for others so that we might be instruments of God's own self-gift, a self-gift that ends up on the cross, so not always comfortable and not always the way we choose it, the divine life shared by all, even now here below, even now. How marvelous a vocation. And then this is a beautiful line. Love himself, Jesus, love himself gives love to us so that we might love with that love. The world continues to be transformed by the light of this love. Thus, as Christians, we have new eyes. Remember how we talked about last week, how once we sin, we can't see clearly, we can't hear clearly, we can't think clearly, we can't love properly. All of our faculties are distorted. So when you're loved again by Jesus and are pressed again into his image and are busy seeing and saying and doing and choosing and loving the way Jesus sees and says and does and loves, then your life will matter. And you can be sure that what you're doing is good. As Christians, we have new eyes, a supernatural viewpoint, the God's eye view of everything, which is completely opposite, you know, sort of where our society is right now. And that's why we all have such trouble with it. Because if you create a system where God doesn't exist, can't exist, can't be an explanation, if all of my emotions and thoughts and interests and loves are just chemicals and charges in my brain, right? then life doesn't mean much. But if, in fact, I'm created in the image of God, and there's a dignity that goes with that, and a love and an expectation, and a charge between now and then about how I should live and what I should do and what that should mean, and right now isn't too soon to start, and that's nourished in the church, 
And when our Heavenly Father was counting days, he thought six days was about as long as anybody could go without coming back to be forgiven and refueled. Then life is different. This is the mystery of the gift given to us as our life, as brothers and sisters of Christ. We really and truly are born anew. Right? So that's what you're meant for every day, no matter the circumstance. We do better and we do worse, right? The last few years have been hard on all of us. But one can't capitulate and we can't say about every day, that was a hard day. At some point, right, you pick yourself up, put one foot in front of the other and you do the right thing. Which is, of course, to follow in the steps of, footsteps of Christ. So, point number two, we can be holy, but we can't be holy on our own. The only hope is that we could be forgiven. And so in your head, as you make a glossary of how to do theology, to be forgiven is to be holy. So it's not a good work until it's a forgiven work, right? Only a forgiven work is a good work. To be forgiven is to be holy. And you can only find that in the church, which is why you should come to church. Not because anybody's being mean to you or, you know, we don't want to disrupt the weekend. You're dead without this. Now, and pay attention to the sermon today, later, if it's not tended properly. Without forgiveness, we are done for. But with forgiveness, which is to say with holiness, today's a very good day and tomorrow will be good too. And on your last day, you can say, um, that's a gift and a blessing. And so, you know, I've often told you the story of Cardinal Bernadine, who when he, you know, he's the Cardinal in, in Chicago. Some of you are younger, may not know this story. He's, you know, a couple, um, a couple of bishops back. You know, he had cancer, they had a go at it. They couldn't cure it. He has a news conference and he calls the news conference to say, hey, I'm done. And people were stunned by this and all. And he, he sort of, it was, it was beautiful. He sort of leaned back and said, what you all don't understand, meaning the journalists and people who are gathered, people with cameras, what you all don't understand is that for Christians, death is a friend. And so when I die, it's a gate to the next thing, a door to what is unimaginably good. And so not a thing to be feared, but rather to be welcomed. Which of course will be kind of the point of today. So at three, Jesus is absolutely mystified when you don't come to church. It's, you know, there are all sorts of parables about this. He's prepared a banquet and nobody shows, right? He gives his gifts and nobody says thanks. He prepares a promised land and People have to wander around for a while because they can't quite get their lines right. Jesus is mystified when we don't go to church, and this is what we did last week, because church is home, and Jesus went to church, and Jesus lives in church. His address is Word and Sacrament. You know, the corner of Word and Sacrament, that's where Jesus lives, at the corner of the altar, which is why the pastors kiss the altar, because when we're at the altar, then we're home. So Jesus, you know, gets up early and waits for you here. And he looks down on you from, from the icon, right? As you gaze up in him, at him, more importantly is how he gazes down at you. 
You know, there he, there, there he hangs for your sins and mine. And yet his look to you in between the gas and the suffering is still one of love. So you come here because this is what you need. And people who deny it or argue against it or shut it down or persecute it are really to be pitied because they have no idea what life really, really is. And you do, and I do, and we've been baptized, we've been to the Holy Supper, we've been forgiven, and frankly, we should act like it. Not out of some, you know, not out of some coercion. You know, love never works by force. We should do what's right, or follow in the footsteps of Jesus, because there is no other life. You've been given the greatest gift, and I have too, that exists in the entire universe from the beginning of time. And you can enjoy it now. It's not something to be enjoyed later. In fact, you can enjoy it and you can share it and you can make it better. These are all possibilities for you. Yes, of course, it's painful and sometimes humiliating. And it seems as if life doesn't matter and if life is wasted, right, in the church. You just need to meet more saints and visit more churches and look at more icons and listen to more requiems, right? Because when every eye's closed, it doesn't mean that everybody's dead. Jesus knows what we need, right? And so he comes and he says, I've come so you could have life abundantly and so it's not just that you can be restored, but that it's unimaginable restoration. And he's done this so you can have joy. And so that you can have joy now and not just at another time, that you can recognize the grace that's been given to you and you can have a different sort of life. People are miserable everywhere, right? Why has everybody stopped watching the news for the last two or three or four years? Because everybody on television is miserable. And frankly, I know plenty of miserable people. I don't need to watch more. Right? I'm good at being miserable all by myself. I don't need any help. But um, Jesus comes and gives you these things so you can have joy. You can recognize that grace has enveloped you and given you your spouse and your kids and your friends and your congregation and a place where you can come and you know, I was, again, as I often am struck by the, there's something about the first bell at the Eucharist that makes the place go silent, even the kids. And the silence after the first bell in this adoration that Christ has just come to the altar. This is, of course, the reason we genuflect because the bell is a doorbell. This isn't complicated. It's just like your doorbell, right? The words are said, the promise is kept, Jesus arrives, and everybody goes silent. It's a joyful, wonderful thing. And when you meet Jesus for the first time, the only proper thing to do is fall face down. So we recognize this kind of love in the liturgy, and we realize that going to church is a matter of life and death. Pause. If you read about the martyrs, if you read about the saints, if you read the history of the church, you will be encouraged. I was in the middle of Lake Baikal in uh, Russia um, the second time around doing mission work there. And so we would start in 
the east and go all the way to the west. In fact, you can go so far in Russia to the west where the last 400 miles to the Sea of Japan, the only way to get there is to walk or take a raft down the rivers. And Lake Baikal is its own microclimate. It has some fabulous percentage of all the world's fresh water. And I still remember this vividly. I was on a boat with Horace Hummel, who had been my professor and then, you know, always the man to be esteemed, genius of a guy, Johns Hopkins PhD in, in uh, archaeology and Old Testament and Hebrew, and had just died recently. A remarkable guy. Um, and I was moaning to him about this or that in the church. And he looks at me and starts laughing. And his answer was, read church history. And then he sort of went on, right? <laughs> the church has always been like this. So the church has always been like this, and people have survived, and it's carried on, and it's still here despite every attempt to exterminate it, starting with the death of Jesus. So if you know all of that, then I want to see if I can get you to practice a discipline that has been around since the first martyrs, which is to consider your death. So, and I'll give you the punchline, to consider your death and then be done with it. Because if you consider it all the time, it'll ruin every moment from now until you die, which would be a completely satanic way to go through life. If you know you're going to die, and that's all you focus on, the dying becomes worse than the death. And you're not good for anything. You're distracted, you're tortured, and you're unsettled at best. You don't sleep, you don't eat, you don't pray, you're not with your friends, there is no joy. We have to move past that and use our death as to our advantage. So here's how. Point four. You should remember that you're going to die. And when you die, you should be confident that you're going to be on the right side of forever. It is true that without Jesus, death can be very frightening. You know, death is proof that we're not God's. Death is proof that we're not as good as we think we are. In some sense, death conquers us. So we are not gods. And knowing that we're not gods, um, it raises some questions. So I give these to you under number five. What comes next? Nothing or something? And if it's something, then is it uh, good or is it evil? And if it's good or if it's evil, does it last for a little while or does it last forever? And when you begin to consider those questions, then what you do today makes all the difference in the world. Now, our world, and we've gotten very good over this in the last 300 years or so, um, since the time of the Enlightenment and then kind of through modernism and postmodernism, we've gotten very good at defining the game in a way that God can't play. So, you know, again, now just for Christians, you know, Christians get all bent out of shape about, you know, science, right? I'm on the other side of that equation. You should just understand the game for what it is. If you start a game that says God can't play, and then all your answers say God can't play, or there is no God, 
Well, you, you don't have to get exercised about that. You just simply say, that's how that game is played. I mean, if you're watching a soccer game and nobody brings out a golf club, you don't get angry about that. You just go, this is soccer. Why would anybody have a golf club, right? Think about it in that way, at least in the most general way. So philosophers, and so some philosophers, and some scientists, and frankly, some theologians, Bishop Spong, if you're old enough to remember him, right? They just define a, the game in a way that God can't play. So, and to be rational is to conclude your presuppositions. In, in any endeavor, to be a rational person is to conclude your presuppositions. That's when you know you followed the rules. So if you start with God doesn't exist and you end with God doesn't exist, there's no tremendous surprise and not something to be offended about in the first analysis. Now, if that gets imposed on you or if policy is made that way or the state is run that way or whatever, then, you know, more trouble and uh, we have to, but at least in general, just in terms of thinking, you shouldn't be surprised that people who realize that they get conquered by death and don't believe in God create a scenario where God doesn't threaten them or judge them in any way after their death. It's just a logical conclusion. So um, you get assertions like this under number six, that life is ours and we can do with it as we please. I'm not a creature of God. Life belongs to me and I can do as, as I wish. Or the measure of life is the quality of life, right? Anthropocentric, human-centered, right? Or the end of life is the end. Any of those will bring you um, inextricably to unlimited abortion and unlimited euthanasia. Because this belongs to me and I'm independent and I'm free and I can do what I want. Very interesting little tagline uh, a couple of weeks ago where Pope Francis said, who's, you know, difficult to pin down sometimes, um, where he said, when love is near the dying, euthanasia ceases to be a question. Very interesting. Certainly means the love of Christ. And so the answer, you know, we know the answer is the love of Christ. But if you say there's a system, a world, with no Christ and no divine love, then people figure out other ways to proceed. You don't have to necessarily be angry with them at the first instance. You best is to try to understand them. And then, of course, as St. Francis says, try to convince them otherwise. And if necessary, go ahead and use words. But um, at the bottom of number six, if any of these are false, if actually God does exist, if life didn't self-generate, I mean, even things like, I mean, this is just so you know, kind of, you know, what's the difference between the first moment of evolution and the Easter story? Well, they're the same story. I always observe to, when I know somebody well enough to ask this, I always observe that they've stolen our story. What's the story of Easter? The story of Easter is that from death comes life. At the most basic sense, what's the first step in 
evolution or how the world began or the Big Bang or pick what you like from things that were not alive somehow comes life. Hmm. They've stolen our story. It's cultural appropriation <laughs> of the highest kind. But if I didn't protest Rihanna in a Bishop's Mitre at the Met, I actually went to see it, although I was a bit uncomfortable, then, you know, I'll be quiet about this for a while, too. So, if any of these are false, you know, things can be terrifying. But there's another option, which is, if you let Jesus into the game, you can take death, death seriously and still not have to bend the rules or even defend yourself from the death that will conquer me. So I know I'm going to die, right? But I also think that when I die, that's when my life will get very interesting. And it's very hard for us to think about this uh, you think about children, spouses, parents, friends, love, glorious things, church, music, art, poetry. You think about the things that are wonderful and beautiful. And of course, when we die, our great nervousness or sadness or tragedy is that thing, these things are lost to us. But what, a, what if, what if that's precisely the moment when these things are found with the greatest intensity, with perfection. And what if that is the moment that is the beginning and not the end, right? And what will it be like to have your body back perfectly done? So on the front of the Sistine Chapel, you know, St. Bartholomew rising up to heaven. He was skinned alive. And in his hand, he carries his skin. And when he gets to the top, then Jesus will redress him and into heaven he'll go. What if that's what it's like? That all the troubles you have will be erased and all the sins you have will be forgiven and all the people you miss will be there and it will only ever get better and better tomorrow, if one can speak that way in eternity, better than yesterday. Right? This great quote from Frederick Beekner, um, you know, he's a writer. He lasted from forever. He was, uh, I think, at Andover. He was the chaplain with all these jaded, you know, uh, prep school boys, including Arthur Just, if you're listening. Uh, He has this great experience about 25 where he decides to go be a pastor, but then he never practices as a pastor. He just writes and teaches, but this, this beautiful thing. And he just died. This, he died about three months ago, I think, at 93 or 96. So this is written some years ago. I will be 80 on my next birthday. And as you approach that extraordinary age, you cannot but help but think about the end of your life, obviously, and what if anything happens next? of all that you lose, all the things that you have lost already, in the way of people you have loved, places and things. But that is not the end, I do not believe. I wrote a novel about an old saint, an 11th century English saint named Godric, 
from whose mouth came words that have become precious to me. I put them in his mouth, but I don't feel that way. It is as if he put them in my ear. Let me end with that. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. So that's it, right? My death is my birth. And for every one of you who is a member here, you've been through the catechumenate, and the catechumenate always starts with Romans 6, and Romans 6 says Jesus' story is my story, and that means that I died with Jesus, and I live with Jesus, and I go into glory with Jesus, and that my life is new in Jesus, and I'm united to Jesus. And if you need another explanation, it's there in 1 Corinthians where it says, Everything that happens to Jesus then happens to me. So Jesus goes first, and then I and all of you who confess Jesus come with him. It's Christ, and then Adam and Eve and the saints, and then you, and then I, we come along. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, but God has put all things under his feet. And so if you can begin to think this way, this will not only relieve you of some of the burden as you think about your own death, but it will also allow you to be more positive about your life between now and then. And the short reason for that is that Jesus wrapped everything up in his love, including you. And faith agrees. So Jesus says, I love you. And you say, you love me. And Jesus says, you know, you're a damn sinner. And you say, confession today, I'm a damn sinner. And Jesus says, I love damn sinners. (laughs) And I died for damn sinners just like you, to which you then say, thank you very much, which is the way of faith. Faith agrees, right? And then you can say, it is of course out there somewhere, you know, this afternoon at 2.30, or, you know, 25 years from now. But whatever the case, when you get there, Jesus will be there too. And as you heard in the gospel reading this morning, he'll send angels for you. It's a remarkably comforting thought. You know, there are two or three or four places where it talks about the angels coming, right? In Jude, it talks about how the angels kept Moses' body from Satan. And then today, Lazarus, the poorest and worst and sickest of all, gets an escort to heaven in the arms of the angels. So here you go. Before she entered the daughters of St. Paul, Sister Teresa Alethea Noble read the biography of the Founder's Order. He kept a ceramic skull on his desk, right? Well, if you do this, um, you know, that's a little weird. My Dr. Ratton, my dentist when I was a boy, uh, his pride was that he never used Novocaine. Nobody would ever need that. <laughs> and I should, have, I should have realized that he had, he had a real human skull that had a spring on the jaw. And before he drilled you, he would open the skull and say, what I'm going to do to you is this. Now, there's, now as an older person, I realize there are several warning signs here. But (laughs) 
Sister Alethea, a punk rock teenager, thought morbid curio was super punk rock. But then, of course, she can't shake it. And so I turned the page. Since 2017, she's made it her mission to revive the practice of memento, memento mori, a Latin phrase meaning remember your death. So there's a whole group of nuns who all they want to do is, you know, some people preach and some people help the poor. This group, all they want you to do is think about the fact that you're going to die. Sister Alethea rejects any suggestion that the practice is morbid. Suffering and death are facts of life. Suffering and death are facts of life. Focusing only on the bright and shiny is superficial and inauthentic. Now there's a criticism of our culture. Focusing only on the bright and shiny is superficial and inauthentic. In a world that values authenticity, although nobody has said it for the last 18 months or so, so we must have moved on to something else. But, uh, you know, in, 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 a, in a society that values this kind of transparency, authenticity, right? Everyone's worked for authentic boss and, you know, all, everybody's pay should be transparent and why people get fired and why they get hired and where they're going, blah, 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 right? Uh, okay, you know, we can all focus on the bright and shiny, it's all going to work out, just wait. We try to suppress the thought of death or escape it or run away from it because we think that's where we'll find happiness. We think if we run away, we'll be fine. Run away, run away, Monty Python. Run away. <laughs> that was just for you, Christmas. So, uh, you know, we, we think if we run away, we'll be fine. No, you run into it. You run into the fire. You run into the death. You run into the crucifixion. And, you know, the bonus prize is a couple of days later, you run into the tomb and it's empty, but you know. We think that's where we'll find happiness, but it's actually in facing the darkest realities of life that we find light in them. I'm going to die, you're going to die, it's gonna be okay. As she wrote in her devotional at the end, remembering death keeps us awake, focused, and ready for whatever might happen next. Both the excruciatingly difficult and the breathtakingly beautiful, both and. So you remember, I have told you, you know, in, in a lucid moment, John Connie once said to me, uh, when I was moaning to him, apparently I have these times when I moan. Um, <laughs> this is gonna be painful though. Uh, he said to me, Bruzek, you're an idealist. You know, Satan is an idealist. <laughs> Jesus is a realist. Yeah. It's good to have people who tell you the truth. So, uh, remember your death, right? Why does death frighten me? Because there are these unknowns, right? When's it gonna happen? Where, how, why? Who am I gonna be with? Am I gonna be alone? Unchecked, what happens is fear becomes an idol. It pushes Jesus out of the way, and then it ruins every moment. From now till then, it ruins every moment. That's what idols always do. That's why you have to smash your idols. That's because the very first commandment is smash your idols. Why? Because idols ruin your life. If death becomes your idol, if fear becomes your idol, you've got to smash that idol, or you're going to be miserable from now until death actually comes. And then, of course, death has ruined this life for you, which is really unfortunate because death can be fabulous if you just come to church. How much hard is this, really? I can't believe I actually get paid for doing this. So, you know... Your imagination is so much worse than the reality. This is like for all things. You know, imagination is so much worse. That's why, you know, 
Horror films always have something behind the door, behind the counter, under the porch, over there, right? In the Memento Mori is an exercise in honesty. I'm going to die, but I'm going to die at a specific point, and I'm going to die just the way Jesus wants me to die, or at least with his approval. So um, since Jesus has that under control, I'm going to just carry on with, I don't know, getting donuts after church and, you know, watching the Bears game, which is like dying. So, um, <laughs> I'm making rational observations, okay? I'm not, I, there's no motion involved there. It just is what it is. So you see that if you, you see this backhanded way, and this happens so often in the church, and this is why, you know, you go, I, was, I looked up at the altar this morning as I was kneeling for confession. I honestly had this thought. I'm disappointed that I can't see any bones. Because I had spent weeks, you know, I St. Lucy and St. Anne and then St. Mark's in Venice where it says, you know, on the front in Latin it says, you know, these are the bones of St. Mark. You go, all right. Mark, how's it going? Way to go. I love you. Right? So I'm going to die. And Jesus is taking care of that. And so the most honest thing I can say is between now and then, Jesus loves me, Jesus never leaves me, and Jesus will not hurt me. And so if I know that, if I know that Jesus is here and Jesus loves me, Jesus cares for me, Jesus won't hurt me, and he's got the death thing under control, I can say to myself, that's going to be painful. That's how death works. It's painful on every level of humanity, physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, you know, it's, it's painful all the way through, but Jesus has cared for that. So I can wake up and say, and you should wake up and say, if you're bothered by your death, you should say, hey, I'm one for one to start the day. I am, in fact, going to die. But the next thing that you say, the memory of this, how focusing on something cures you, is to say, is to, is to speak about the reality of it. You say, I'm going to die, and Jesus will be there. And because Jesus will be there, it's all going to be okay. And so now I can pay attention to the other things that are important in life, like going to the Eucharist and caring for the poor, being generous and living in mercy, serving other people, chasing the things of the kingdom of God, not chasing the things of the kingdom of this earth or of evil. So the whole point here is um, you might try this as a practice. Do it for a year or 10 years, and then we'll get back together and see how it works for you. But if you say to yourself, nobody's getting out of here alive, but when it's my turn, Jesus will be there, and he's got that covered, right? Then it's all going to be okay, and my story is going to end well. Point 11. I just want to make sure I say this to you again because it's time to go. You only have this consolation if you come to church. Or the flip side of that is, your life is wasted if it's not in the church. I know this sounds uh, very brisk, and I'm willing over the next weeks or months to defend this. And I understand the nuances of the church carrying things out into the world and people's struggles and they were in and now they're out and there's weak. Yeah, I got all that, right? When I say this, what I mean is the world, which in its extremes doesn't even leave room for God, 
and does not leave room for mercy, does not know on its own about the great mercies of a loving God. And so the church is the place where those gifts are given. And if you don't go to church or have exposure to the church, you'll never know that, right? Last thing, the church is not fire insurance, right? The church isn't just about staying out of hell. The church is meant to be heaven on earth. The church is where you are conformed to Christ. The church is all about joy. The church is about forgiveness. The church is about perfection. The church is about holiness. The church is about a life that matters and needs worth having. That's what the church is about. And you can help yourself toward that by remembering your death, but only for a moment every morning. Got to go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you soon. See you at the altar.